list is uh, due like two weeks ago. <laughs> so tomorrow could literally be induction Monday, and we can't wait. We were so excited. And when she called us about six months ago, and Lori and I were traveling in the car, we just pulled out of the parking lot at uh, Dean East Clinic, and Laura said, uh, put Dad on the speakerphone, and she told us the news. I, I like felt, now I know I cry at commercials, so I'm a wimp, <laughs> but I felt something deep that I've never felt before. And I've been talking to every grandparent I can find to say, what is that? It's like, we have five kids, so I, I know something about having new life being brought into your life, but this is like different. And so I've gotten real philosophic. What is this? I've been thinking, and I, I don't know if this is it, but this week in studying this passage, it's, it's connected me with, with, I think, something that's deep in God's heart, and that is not just his love for his children, but for the children of his children and their children and their children, the generations, right? So remember what he said to, Abraham, to Adam and Eve? Um, in in Ge Genesis chapter 1, remember he blesses their union, their marriage, and he says to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. And at first blush, you're going, of course, they need lots of kids, lots of progeny, because it's a big world and they're supposed to take care of it, steward it, right? But then you, you understand that actually it's more than something that's numeric, that's physical, that's quantitative. It actually has to do with spiritual multiplication. How do we know that? Well, because Malachi 2.15 is, is interpreting this very section of Scripture, and this is what it says in Malachi. Has not the one God made you? He's speaking about husband and wife. You belong to him in body and spirit. So our union as Christ followers is physical and spiritual, one flesh, union, physical, spiritual. Has he not made you with body and spirit, right? And what does the one God seek? What's the purpose of this union? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. Think about Genesis 12, right? God promises to bless Abraham so that through Abraham and his family, all the families, right, of the world will be blessed. That's always been God's heart. His heart has been for all the generations. Christ died for all the generations, right? This biblical vision is captured in the song of Asaph. It's recorded in Psalm 78, verse 4. We will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power, and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children so the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born. And they, in turn, would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. And so in the storyline, this is passing on Adam and Eve to their kids, Moses to the people of Israel, Joshua now at the end of his life, he's passing the baton, so to speak. And he writes these words we have in Joshua 24. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. 
but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And right after this, the people say, no, we're not giving it. We're, we're not going to serve other gods. It's pretty amazing to think that 40 years after coming out of Egypt, Joshua is still saying, guys, you still got these idols. You've got you to chuck them. He says, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And the people quickly said, hey, we, we're on with you, Josh. We're, we're not going to serve other idols. We're going to serve the Lord. And right after that, Joshua says, actually, no, you're not. You're actually not going to do what you say you're going to do. And their response is, yes, we will. And then we get to Judges, and we find out, no, they didn't. And as we come to the book of Judges, in fact, why don't you just grab your Bible, and we'll go there. In Judges chapter 2 is where we're at. So we're after Joshua, we're before Ruth, we're about the seventh book into the Bible. So early on, we don't know actually who wrote Judges, in uh, chapter 18, there's a reference to the exile and to captivity. So it's a lot later, right, in the history of God's people. So this is somewhere around maybe 1400 B.C. And the exile happens in the 8th century and in the 6th century. So it's, it's, it's a long way after that. It's this period between the R Joshua's leadership and King Saul, the first king anywhere from three to 400 years. Joshua's no, no longer on the scene in the book of Judges. We begin, we understand that he's died. And there's this repeated line that we're gonna hear repeated over and over again when we get to reading through the book of Judges. And Israel did that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served idols. 38 times it's repeated in this history section from Joshua all the way to 2 Chronicles, but the line starts right here in the book of Judges. And the last line of the book, in a sense, just wraps it all up of what's going on. Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. So this is before the kings. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And the image that I have is of a spiral staircase that has these heroes on it, these judges, this godly woman, right? And, and we've got these godly men. So Deborah, the judge, and other judges like Gideon and Samson and Jephthah and Ehud, the left-handed judge, and all the others. But the, the, the overarching motif and movement, yes, you have these heroes, these figures, but it's just this downward spiral. It goes from bad to worse. And nine times in the book of Judges, you see this cycle repeated. The people sin, they serve other gods, God punishes them, he brings enemies to oppose them, to get their attention, they cry out to God, he's merciful in raising up a judge. The judge brings victory over the enemies and restores peace and restores relationships of the people so that they're serving God faithfully. The leader dies, and then the people, they turn back to the idols, and it's worse than it was the cycle before. That's the book of Judges. So in chapter 2, verse 6, we come up to what I think is one of the saddest, if not the saddest verse in the whole Old Testament. So let's start in verse 6. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. 
the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of, inher- of his inheritance at timnath Harris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. Here it is, the saddest verse. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. So let's just unpack verse 10. They didn't know the Lord, and they didn't know what he had done. His faithful acts, his miraculous acts to rescue, to sustain these people. His people. So it's important that as we think about this period that we understand there likely was a lot of religious activity. Why do I say that? Because in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, that same phrase, they did not know the Lord, is, is used to describe two of Eli. Eli's the high priest. He has two sons who are priests who are called worthless men. These guys are sleeping with women in the tabernacle. These are bad guys. But they're religious leaders. They didn't know God, but they were religious leaders and leading the people in lots of religious activity. And and so it's really important for us to understand that there could have been a lot of the trappings that looked like they knew the Lord. But it was external. It was a lot of religious activity, and it wasn't connected to the heart. God has called his people into a relationship. He's a covenant-making God. He says, I want to be your God, and I want you to be my people. And they didn't know God. They didn't know God. There was no intimate connection. There was no living by faith, taking God at his word, right, believing his promises, obeying his commands. There was none of that. They did not know the Lord. And it says they did not know the record, the history of God's love for his people. Somewhere along the line, they stopped telling the stories. Somewhere along the line, I don't know what happened with Passover, which is just this huge picture in a meal, right, of the the bread, the flat bread, and and the lamb, and the cups of, of God's delivering grace and his salvation power for his people. They stopped telling the stories, so they didn't know that their God was their creator, their redeemer, the faithful God who keeps all his promises, a just God who punishes the guilty, a merciful God who forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. They forgot the stories of his provision of the manna every day for 40 years, the quail, the water from rocks and other places, the clothes and the sandals that never wore out over 40 years. They did not know what God had done. So verse 11 says, here's what happened next. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. These, these are the, like the, the practical, real close idols of the day, of the land, of their neighbors. They served the Baals. They forsook the Lord. They turned their back on God, the God of their ancestors who brought them out of Egypt, the God who saved them. They turned their back on him. And they followed and worshipped various gods, not just Baals, but all kinds of gods, the gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. And so we have, how how does that happen? How, How does the book open with, 
come. The people served the Lord during the time of Joshua's leadership. And then the very last line of the book says, and everyone did that which was right in their own eyes, and Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. How does that happen? How does it go from a, a generation that's following God to a generation that doesn't even know who God is? There, there is no relationship with God. They have no memory of how God has broken into real-time space history on their behalf to, to declare who he is and his great love and purpose for them. How does that happen? And I'd like to suggest that there's three words that we find in the, the word of God that tells us a little bit of how it happened. The first word is compromise. The second word is negligence, or we could call it parental neglect. The third word is indifference. It's their indifference towards God's clear warnings of what could likely happen when they get into this land of abundance and prosperity, the promised land. So let's unpack those. The first has to do with compromise. We note that in the text, that they didn't fully obey God. There was this partial obedience. There was this half-hearted attempt of obeying God, which is really disobedience. The command that God clearly gave them was, you've got to drive out these people. This is describing what happened in that day, not what is to happen in our day. He says, I want you to be an extension of my judgment against these wicked people, and you are going to drive them out as an extension of my justice. And it's not because you are a righteous, godly people. In chapter 9 of Deuteronomy, he says, it's not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going to take this land. It's because I made a promise to Abraham to give this land. I'm going to be faithful to it. And so I want you to drive these people out. And in driving these people out, I'm going to protect you from their idolatry, from their wickedness, because they're going to lead you astray if you live with these people. You're just going to assimilate, accommodate, compromise, and forsake me and look to other gods. And chapter 1 of Judges makes it clear as they moved into the land, they didn't drive out all the people. In fact, from verse 27 all the way through 35, it's one tribe after another where we see this phrase where it says, this tribe failed to drive the ites, the people out, the Jebusites, the Hittites, the Parasites. All these people were supposed to be driven out of the land. They didn't do that. Rather, it says, they conscripted them as slaves. So the very thing they were to drive out of their lives, they said, no, I'm going to actually own this thing control this thing. They're making a deal with God. I know, I know what you said, but you know what? We think we could use a little extra manual labor because we got all these fields and vineyards and orchards and, and you know, we're going to build these cities now to greater heights and this would be really helpful. And, you know, maybe they're hearing and remembering all that happened in, in, in Pharaoh's Egypt and how, you know, that manual labor thing, that works out pretty good. Compromise, compromise. So what happens? What happens when a generation looks at the generation ahead who's leading a life of half-hearted, partial obedience. What, what does that look like when your dad or your uncle or a leader in the church says the right things, but you, you see him the rest of the week? You see how what they say and what they do 
don't line up. You go, this is, this is, this is phony. This is hypocrisy. This, this, this isn't drawing me to follow that God. I think of my mom who grew up in this really strict, legalistic little band of believers who said the right things, loved the Bible, taught it all. But then it was just crazy uh, all around that. And she's got a family of eight brothers and sisters, and like most of them, just walked out. This is a charade. This is phony. This is bogus. This is broken. The generation looking at that, they smell that. That's what I loved about working with junior high and high school kids. They smell that. And, and, and it's one of the hard things about being a parent of five kids. You can't get away with it. They, they smell it. They know it. Right? But compromise leaves a generation of not knowing God, not wanting to know God, not knowing about his power, not just in the past, but seeing it in the life of your parents and grandparents. You see? Compromise. Then there's another clue, and it comes out of Deuteronomy 6. And we call this negligence. We can call it parental neglect. But, you know, you may not be a parent, and it would be really easy to go, it's not about me. But let, let me just say, there's, there's a generational responsibility. You know, we've heard the phrase, it takes a village. Um, it, it, and I don't know what you think about that, but the, the, the biblical account is saying it, it's our responsibility, not just mom and dad's responsibility, to raise up another generation who knows and loves God with all their heart. So here's the teaching and the principles in, in Deuteronomy 6. And we're going to unpack here the issue of negligence. And in Deuteronomy 6, we're also going to see the whole thing of indifference towards warning. So Deuteronomy 6, this is like, this is like one of the most helpful passages to give us clarity as parents and grandparents what we ought to be about what is priority for us as we think about the next generation. That's true for you as you're a small group leader for high school kids or a, a leader in our children's ministry. This gives clarity of what's important. So here's how it goes. Verse 1, these are the commands, this is Deuteronomy 6. Decrees and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. So that you, your children, their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, be careful to obey, so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That's priority one. That's priority one for John and Laura when that baby boy comes into this world. And there's so many other good things that we can chase and we lose our way. It's great that they've got, you know, a great group of friends. It's great that they're a great athlete. It's great that they're a great artist. But what's greatest is that they would know and love and serve and find their security and purpose in life through the relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's priority one. So how does it happen? Well, listen to, listen to the principles here. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. 
So here's how it happens. You cannot impart what you do not possess. You cannot be saying, oh, I want my kids so much to love Jesus, and you don't love Jesus. I, I want my kids to be sold out for Christ, and you're not sold out for Christ. You, you cannot impart what you do not possess. The first principle is, the commands I give you today are to be on your heart, mom and dad, on your heart, generation, right? Impress them then on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up where, wherever you are, whenever you're doing it, right? Morning, noon, evening, whatever it is. Talk about loving God with all your heart. Tie them as symbols. Remind them as they visually see these symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them, carve them in the door frames of your house and on your gates so, so to say, so it would be carved in their own architecture, their hearts, that's how it happens. We love God. We keep it at the center of our conversations. You go, well, that's easier, Pastor. It's not easy. It's not easy. And so the fact is that this generation grows up and they don't know the Lord and they don't know what he's done. There's been this whole negligence here. They didn't have the law in their hearts. They weren't keeping it central to the conversation in all of life. And, and, and so this generation is lost at this point. So that's neglect. And then there's the last one. It's indifference. So it goes on to give us warning in verses 10 through 14. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large flourishing cities. You did not build houses filled with all kinds of good things. You did not provide wells you did not dig and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God. Serve him only. And take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. And so the people and judges are now living in the land. They're in these houses that are full of stuff that used to belong to the ites. And they're, their and they're in their cities that they didn't build, the houses they didn't build, that they're drinking from the wells that they didn't dig. From they're, they're picking the grapes and making the wine, and they've got the olive groves. They didn't have any of that. God gave it to them. And he says, in the day that you eat those things and are satisfied, watch out. Be careful. The danger is you're going to forget God because you don't think you need God because you got everything. In times of success, in times of prosperity. Be careful that you don't forget the Lord. What happened, happens today. The compromise, the neglect, the indifference to warnings. Let me tell you it happens today. Because just two days ago, our family was coming back from a great ski trip in Colorado. Our boys, for the first time, had spring breaks that coincide. So it was awesome. We went out to Colorado, had a great four days of ski, and we're coming back, and there was this, uh, just a, a series of miscues that had everything to do with moi. It was me. So I'm, we're coming out of the springs. We're up on 470, the wonderful tollway that keeps you out of all the craziness of Denver. And I turn off of 470 on I-70, which goes through Kansas, and I was supposed to go further north up to I-76 to get me into Nebraska, where we had a hotel waiting for us. So after we had dinner, 
in Lyman, which I'm going, Lyman, where are you in Lyman? I look at, I look at my phone, I go, you're still 250, 250 miles, what, 250 miles still to North Platte? What is going on? What's going on is I turned off my phone and I thought I knew where I was going and I didn't. And so I got her family lost. Well, this is just the beginning of miscues. <laughs> so we'd also been having conversations over the course of this trip of how many, how many gallons is this new van that we have, new used van, Odyssey van, and I know, you know where this is going. All right. So uh, at one point, I'm driving, and it's the warning lights on, and it's into the E. We get gas, and there's 18 gallons I put in. I'm just going, well, 18 gallons? How, many, how close were we, right? I wanted to know. So I get the manual out. It says 21 gallons. So I'm going, ha, oh, we had a good 50, 60 miles of, of travel that we could have done. That's good to know, right? When you're in the middle of nowhere. So that next Friday morning, Lori's driving. I'm working on this message. And uh, that was the irony. And um, anyways, <laughs> the light goes on. And we're thinking, all right, it's close to lunch. We'll do a twofer. We're going to get some, you know, we're going to get some McDonald's fast food. We're going to fill it up. And Lori's going, man. And we're kind of in the middle of nowhere here. And I think we're in Nebraska. I don't know where we were. We're in Nebraska. And the light's on. Lori's getting nervous. And I'm, I'm in the, the next seat, right? I'm looking over. And it's still, the light's on. I see that. But the little needle was still above the E. And I remember when it was into the E. So I say prophetically, Lori, don't worry. We've got at least 50 or 60 miles to go. About 10 minutes later, we're at the top of a hill. She goes, we ran out of gas. I said, we did not run out of gas. <laughs> I, look at the, I look at the whole, the, 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 the whole display there, and like every warning light is on. <laughs> she says, I got the pedal to the floor. I said, honey, you cannot have run out of gas. It must be an alternator or something. She's laughing. She goes, I ran out of gas. But it wasn't funny. We're on I-80. Trucks are flying by at 80. And Lori creeps to the, you know, I'm thinking in my mind, this is going to be so beautiful. We're at the top of a hill, there's an exit not too far. And we're, have you ever done that where you just coast in to the gas station? It's like awesome. I was thinking this is going to happen. This is going to happen if we are indeed out of gas, which I wasn't sure we were. Well, we didn't do that. We ended up on I-80, trucks flying. It's a pouring rainstorm. We call up 911. They give us Gary, the trucking guy's number. I said, Gary, I think we're out of gas. He says, okay, I'll bring, I'll bring my pickup and I'll just bring some gas. I said, you know, just in case it's not the gas, because I was hoping it wasn't, <laughs> just bring the tow truck. So he brings the tow truck and I meet him out in the pouring rain. I said, where's the gas? He said, well, I thought you just wanted to be towed. I said, well, at this point, let's just get off this highway because this is really dangerous. So he's got one of those flatbed tow trucks. So he drops that thing down. He changes up. And I'm thinking, so where are we going to sit? He says, well, I only got room for two. So I said, does anybody want to go? And we were just like, we weren't really figuring this out. So we all stayed in the van. Is this legal? <laughs> we're up high. And it feels like we're just going to tip over. And like this guy's passing people. It's a pouring rain. We can't see anything. It's all fogged up. And we're just crying to Jesus for mercy and help. Oh, my goodness. So it gets better. He pulls into the Casey's gas station, and he pulls in front of the tanks, 
the gas fuel tanks, and he, and he drops the car down. I mean, you're, you're, I'm just feeling like a total loser as we're filling up the van off this flatbed. We put some gas, and he says, turn it on, see if it, well, it was. We were out of gas. <laughs> and the whole time on the side of the road, as, I mean, my wife could have been really ripped off at me, but she was just, I, she was in hysteria laughing. She's laughing <laughs> and laughing. I'm going, we didn't run out of gas. She's like, you're such an idiot. We did run out of gas. This whole time, Peter in the back seat, he's got his video camera on. <laughs> and he Snapchats it across America. <laughs> and it's a good thing Lori was laughing, and I was too, and oh my word. So what happened? Where are we at? I was indifferent to what? The warning light. My, my friend, my, my friend, she said, no, no, it was worse than that, Mark. You weren't just not paying attention to the warning light. You weren't listening to your wife. I said, yeah, you're right. <laughs> but it's, it's this whole thing. Of, of in, the warning was on. You're going to get to the land. It's going to be a land of prosperity. Be careful. Be careful in your abundance. Friends, we live in a world where literally billions of people live on less than two, three bucks a day. And whatever we think about where we are in this world, we have to understand we live in a freak little bubble of prosperity. And the danger is we forget God. And when we forget God and make materialism our God, a generation is lost. And this is what I love about this new generation coming up. I love this about most of my lines. You can't paint it all with a bright brush, but I do not see this young generation. I love it about this young generation. My five kids are millennials. I do not see this. we got to make a lot of money because that's so important because I think they've seen it. They've seen the boomers chasing the money, their parents, and going, it's not all that it's cracked up to be, is it? And so there's compromise. And there's negligence. And there was just disregard. Eyes opened wide indifference to God's clear warning. Watch out. Watch out. So what happens? The text goes on to say what happens is God, his anger is aroused. He's angry at his people. He doesn't just allow enemies into the situation, but as an expression of his love, he's now disciplining them. The opposite of love is not hatred. It's indifference. God is never indifferent to his children. And so they're messing up big time. They've turned away big time. He's angry. How does he respond? He brings hard things, oppressors, enemies. This is so, so ironic. So the very people whose gods they've taken on as their gods are, are now going to come and ransack them and oppress them and, and conscript them into their service, so to speak. And he allows that to happen. The people cry out, and God doesn't say, all right, you've made your bed, lie in it. He didn't say, you reap what you sow. He was merciful to the people, and he, and he raised up a judge. And the text goes on to say, and the people were delivered by these judges, and there was peace. And then after that, they went back to their foolish ways again. So at the end of this message, we ask ourselves, Lord, show me the compromise. Because trust me, from me to everyone listening, there's compromise, and we get goofed and duped into thinking that this half-hearted stuff is, is halfway right, 
And God says, no, it's all wrong. Where's there compromise? Where's there a lack of integrity? We ask ourselves, what is God asking to drive out of our lives that's become an idol and we think we can control it and make it our servant? What, what is that? Where, where have we been just, we've lost our way as, as a mother, as a father, as a grandfather, as a grandmother, as a big brother, a sister, an aunt, an uncle, a teacher, a, a small group leader. We've lost our way about what's important. Where, where's the negligence, Lord? Where, where, where is there indifference to, to the clear warnings of your word which are meant to bless me and protect me? And where am I just running through those lights, those warning lights that are blinking? God, help us. And God, help us to remember that what happened then happens today and that to a greater degree, a perfect degree, God hears our cry and raised up his son, the righteous judge who brings victory through his death, who gives us peace with God. And we cling to his mercy and his grace. Oh, those of you who are parents, those of you who are grandparents and you're reflecting on your life and you go, man, I felt like, you know, I had the baton in hand and, and, I, and I dropped it and they never got it and we're just beating ourselves up, lots of guilt. Well, there may be stuff to confess and we do that, but don't let the enemy leave you in a place of guilt and regret you allow the realities of the situation and the pain and ache in your own heart to drive you to the mercy and grace of God and realize that he loves our kids and grandkids more than we do. He knows where they're at. He knows how to get to the places in their heart that we can never get to. And he's relentlessly pursuing them with his grace. And so we pray and we say, God, help us to live a life of integrity because it's just the middle of the story right now. And so let me encourage you parents as you're raising your kids to not lose your way. Pointing your kids to Jesus, to know, to love, to serve him with all that they are, to find their security in him, that they're loved by him, that that would be your pursuit, that you know that this church is with you in this. And so bless those of you who serve with our kids. Bless those of you who pray for our students, who serve our students. This is something that we're in together. May God help us and bless us that we would be a generation that raises up another generation to go, these people weren't perfect, but they loved Jesus. And they were on with Jesus. And they were honest with each other about their shortcomings. And they reveled in his grace. And they weren't about religious activity. They were about loving Jesus and joining him in this world to love those he came to die for. And I want to just say again, thanks to this generation that's coming, I'm bullish. I'm bullish about the future. I'm bullish about young leaders in the church. The church is in good hands, God's hand, and he's raising up young leaders to go before us, and we're blessed by that. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we love you and we bless you that you keep pursuing us with mercy. Lord, for someone here today that there are some hard things that just may be the very thing that you're using to get their attention, we pray that they would know 
that you are a God who's not indifferent to them, that you love them, and that you suffered, Lord Jesus, in giving up your life for all that's happened to bring them back to you. Oh, Lord Jesus, show us the failings of our own heart. We want to lean on you wholeheartedly. We want to be a church that blesses the kids of this church, the grandkids of this church, the kids of this community. Help us, Lord, 